This is the ballad of Hollywood Jack and the Rage Cage And Hollywood Jack hit the big time and went to make movies From iHeartRadio, the Based on True Events anthology We chronicle true events in the Hollywood tradition That is to say, adhering to the facts As long as the facts don't get in the way of a good story First up the Don, the definitive 24-episode podcast series on Hollywood producer Don Simpson. Episode 5, A Tale of Two Simpsons. Pierce learns that Autumn Weston's doctor was a regular at Don's house parties. After Pierce received the $3,000 hotel bill, he approached the front desk and did what anyone with less than $2,000 in his checking account would do. He smiled and requested a late checkout. There was no point in contesting the bill. He had naively followed Royce Newton's instructions. Dude, they just need a credit card from the person staying at the hotel. Don't worry, bro, I'll take care of the bill. But repeated calls to Royce's pager went unanswered. The only other number he had was from an actress at the Point Doom party. She had mistakenly thought Pierce was the actress Rufus Sewell. Pierce was happy enough and drunk enough to oblige her with onset stories of his latest film, Cold Comfort Farm, and what it was like to work with the young actress Kate Beckinsale. Now he had the daunting task of impersonating an Olivier Award-winning actor in order to find Hollywood's most notorious celebrity drug dealer. This recording was Pierce's recollection after leaving the actress's apartment. Pierce has edited her name out of privacy concerns. I'm now standing outside the Art Deco Fontenoy Apartments in Whitley Heights, a stone's throw away from the Hollywood hipster dance club Les Deux Café and the dive bar Bordner's where Charles Bukowski drank boilermakers and wrote notes from a dirty old man on cocktail napkins. I've just left the apartment of the actress Mel, one of the stars of the Leprechaun horror film trilogy. Is that me gold? What the hell are you? I'm a leprechaun, me dear. And yet, despite her successes, she has not gotten over her disappointment that the actress who beat her out of the lead in the first Leprechaun film, Jennifer Aniston, now has a lead role on a hot new television sitcom. The apartment, a 1930s deco remodel, had just been freshly painted and there are still tarps on the floor. The paint fumes are strong. I feel slightly light-headed. I'm offered a glass of vodka and a bowl of chips and guac made fresh from a Fuerto avocado tree in the courtyard. It is evident that Melon has been drinking. She lands one more dig at Jennifer Aniston, chalking up success in this town to having connections. It's not who you know, it's who you blow, she snarks. I assure her that talent and hard work will inevitably pay dividends. She replies, it's easier for male actors. Try being an actress in this town and not going all peg Entwistle. Pierce, a film historian, knew the Entwistle story all too well. Young ingenue starlet moves to Hollywood, broken home, an orphan. She comes to town looking to be a star, but what is she really looking for? To be loved, of course. She's immensely talented, played Hedda Gobbler on Broadway, yet she can't get a movie role. Rejection upon rejection. She gives everything. Blood, sweat, and tears. Finally, her big break. Thirteen women with Myrna Loy. She's made it. Only to find at the premiere screening nearly all her scenes end up on the cutting room floor. Washed up at 24, she climbs up the Hollywood sign on Mount Lee under a starless night. 
Standing up on the letter H, she leaves a note. I'm a coward. I'm sorry. If I had done this a long time ago, it would have saved a lot of pain. And jumps to her death. Side note, a few years earlier, a young actress went to the theater and after seeing Peg on stage, declared, I want to be Peg and Whistle. The actress? Betty Davis. Pierce checks for a reaction to his retelling of the most tragic of actress tales. She seems to concur that show business will destroy an actress's self-esteem and then asked me whether she needs a nose job. A delivery messenger had just dropped off a script. It's a play, Moliere, to be performed at a black box on Melrose. She asked my advice on whether to pursue Moliere on Melrose or an adult movie role on Spice Channel that pays $2,000 a week. She's very keen on the Spice Channel opportunity. Indulge your curiosity. The Spice Channel was an American softcore cable TV offering in the mid-1990s. For those that didn't pay for the subscription, the channel would offer a scrambled video blurring the naked actors in a sort of psychedelic painting collage, known among horny teenage boys as Picasso porn. As she paused, I tried to segue into her relationship with Autumn Weston. She immediately becomes defensive. She wants to know if I'm interested romantically in Autumn. Because Autumn, I should know, doesn't date actors. I momentarily forget she thinks I'm Rufus Sewell. I tell her I am concerned about Autumn's well-being. I recognise the marks on her temples. I knew from my time at Bethlehem Royal that excessive ECT can lead to marks and burns on the head and face. What I learn about Autumn Weston shocks me to the core. Under the direction of her doctor, Autumn Weston had undergone electroshock therapy for two-minute sessions, a total of 27 times. I had known and firmly believe electroshock to be quite effective as the gold standard for depression and psychosis, but only if used for short sessions and over a limited number of treatments. The duration and number of sessions administered to Autumn suggested medical malpractice at best, criminal action at worst. I pressed for the name of the doctor who had prescribed the treatment. She replies she doesn't remember the doctor's name, only that she had met him at a party at a famous producer's house. Was it the producer, Don Simpson? I referenced some of his films, Flashdance, Top Gun, to jar her memory. I wasn't at all surprised when she said yes. But before I can find out anything more about Autumn or her doctor or her relationship to Don, my pager buzzes. Pierce finds himself back on the move. The number on his pager linked Royce Newton to the famous Sunset Marquee Hotel. The Marquee was a hidden oasis designed for rock stars to party all night and sleep all day, which explained why the hotel was mostly empty at 11 a.m. In the lobby, I spy George Michael in his Caesar-style bowl cut. I know his Theo Belair sunglasses and remind myself to see if I might later find a pair at discount. At a table nearby, Lyle Lovett is sipping tea and frowning in silence with his wife, the actress Julia Roberts. I wonder if they're going to make it. It had taken me ten minutes to find off-street parking, and by the time I've reached the Paul Cabanas, Royce is nowhere to be found. My pager goes off again. 
another message from Royce at another locale. I begin to feel like Joseph Cotton looking for the whereabouts of Harry Lyme. Instead of the back alleys of Vienna, I'm hit to an insider's look at the most exclusive hotels in LA. I'm also privy to a day in the life of a celebrity drug dealer. Where would Royce go next? Beverly Wilshire? Four Seasons? At the new hotspot Sky Bar. At every stop, I encounter an apologetic front desk person. Mr. Newton has left in haste to his next business meeting. The only positive development in my wild dash around town is my newfound confidence in using the Thomas Guide. My pager goes off again. An apology. Let me buy you lunch, he says. I drive through a run-down fish-and-chip stretch in mid-city to find Royce dressed like a dog's dinner in fancy Prada digging into a paper plate of beans and Taco El Pastor, a joint called Sky Tacos. When I try to discuss the hotel bill, he cuts me off. My worries don't compare to what he's going through right now. As it turned out, Royce did indeed have worries. He explained why he was so difficult to reach. The network E-Television had been camped out outside his mobile home in Point Doom. There were reports the LAPD was zeroing in on him as a possible suspect. A suspect for what? Pierce asked. Don wasn't murdered. It's OJ, man, Royce groaned. They're linking me back to OJ. A year ago, Pierce reported how Royce was implicated at the OJ trial. OJ's defense team tried to discredit the testimony of OJ's former friend, the ex-cop Ron Shipp, by suggesting Shipp was a party hound and that Royce, who was known to be both OJ and Nicole Brown's drug dealer, dealt to Shipp as well. What was even more incriminating for Royce was the Johnny Cochran Colombian cartel theory that only a drug cartel was ruthless enough to commit such a gruesome knife crime and that it was the Colombians' drugs, presumably sold by Royce to Nicole, OJ, and Faye Resnick, that sparked the Colombians to go after Resnick over an unpaid drug debt. But when the Colombians arrived, they found Nicole and Ronald Goldman. And naturally, as one must do if one is a ruthless cartel, they cut them up in horrific retribution. The theory was just that, a theory. But it did serious damage to the case of OJ's prosecution, and it did serious damage to the drug-dealing business of Royce Newton. At the time, Royce had only been off probation for two years. Here's Pierce describing Royce recounting his troubles with the law. Royce had been arrested outside a nightclub with 10 ounces of cocaine. As Royce tells it, it was Rick James's bodyguards who set me up. As soon as I came out of the club, the cops were on to me. They sent me straight to Chino. I was stabbed twice in six months. Even so, I was more afraid to leave prison than to stay in. I knew the Colombians would come after me. I owed them ten ounces of coke. Two days out of prison, five whips pull up in the driveway. I don't have a gun. I'm in sober living as part of probation. My sober living buddy is trying to call the cops, but the Colombians have cut the phone cord. One guy puts his hands around my neck. Another guy grabs my shirt. They all jump me at once and start hugging me. All ten of them, high on coke, hollering respect. I didn't spill names. 
I passed the loyalty test. As a reward, they pull out a 20-ounce sack. They're not fronting me. It's a gift. Just like that, I'm open for business. In no time, my whole clientele has come back. Jack and Kiefer, Julian Lennon and the King of Sweden. Royce tells Pierce how he had struggled in high school and thought he was probably dyslexic and that the King of Sweden was also dyslexic and that their relationship evolved over a shared history of being unable to spell. A lot of Royce's relationships with clients were on that sort of personal level. That's why he'd been so successful. I ask about his relationship with Don and whether that relationship was personal. Royce reveals he was just out of high school when he was arrested for breaking into Don's office. He stole one of his gold records off the wall. We can never verify which gold record, but it was most likely the gold record from the Flashdance soundtrack. Don didn't press charges. Don told the cop that Royce was his assistant. How to explain nicking the gold record? Simple. Don had asked Royce to have his record professionally polished. Royce loved Don right then and there. Don introduced Royce to everybody. Don Henley, Don Johnson, but Don Simpson made sure it was the Don and nobody else that would get first dibs on Royce's drugs. Don would fly Royce in for his infamous Aspen ski party. Royce could easily clear $100,000 in a weekend. Those were the glory days, when you couldn't buy a car without doing a line with a dealer, or sell a script without doing a line with your agent. That was L.A. in the 80s. But in the 90s, everything changed. The drugs were still flowing, but now Royce had to be far more discreet, like Al in The Limo Man. According to Pierce, Al the Limo Man was Royce's main rival. Whereas Royce was conspicuous, Al the limo man was rarely seen. He would show up to a deal in a chauffeured limo. The driver would take the client's money. A second limo would then pull up to make the drug exchange. When Don was at the studio, it was said that Don would pay a premium for Al to hide his cocaine inside a screenplay to then be delivered to Don before his story meetings. For as much as friends warned Royce to be more discreet, He didn't seem to heed their advice. The Los Angeles Laker owner, Jerry Buss, is a friend, and Royce has been given floor seats for Magic Johnson's comeback from retirement game after his HIV diagnosis. I watch as Royce greets the security guard outside the forum club with a low-five handshake followed by a high-five. A sleight-of-hand drug-for-cash transaction so obvious a four-year-old child could spot it. From the private entrance, we take the private elevator to a private door that leads to a private members-only club. But the vibe once inside is oddly not so private. There are pretty people next to not-so-pretty people that are clearly money people. The pairings are obvious. The pretty attracts the money, and the money attracts the pretty. It's all transparent and transactional. It's no wonder I feel so uninvited, possessing neither the money nor the pretty. Royce, on the other hand, is at ease working the room. We sit down in an exclusive roped-off section where the buffet is 50 feet long with premium steaks and seafood and giant dessert cakes. Royce mentions needing to go see the Lakers' owner at his suite. I dine alone on lobster thermidor and a dry martini while watching a tribute to Magic Johnson. I can see why they call him Magic. 
He's a beguiling performer. You can call it the night the lights went back on in Los Angeles. Magic Johnson talking to his teammates on his return January 30th, 1996. I find Magic's comeback inspiring. I'm reminded that I too have been out of the game for quite some time. And like Magic, I've lost none of my love of the game. There's an excitement in the air. I follow the fans exiting into the arena and take my seat. Well, Bob, welcome to Magic Johnson Mania. I haven't seen a buzz like this in L.A. since the late 80s when it was really showtime. I'm front row. I spot Sharon Stone in a copper pantsuit and blue-tinted sunglasses, her hair cropped short from filming her new movie, Sliver. She holds a beer and appears to be smiling in my direction. I look around to see if perhaps her attention might be on someone else, but I'm the only one there. In my mind, I make the Bob Evans sliver connection and think, my God, this is as good as chance as any to go up and start a conversation with a glamorous movie star. It is a few minutes into the game before magic makes an appearance. Well, listen to this crowd. They speak for us. And here comes magic. Just as magic enters, Royce takes a seat beside me. He makes no mention of the fact he's abandoned me for the past hour. He flashes a knowing look to Jack Nicholson and then waves to Sharon, all of them wearing their sunglasses inside the arena. I now understand why they call the Lakers Showtime. In the fourth quarter, the courtside crowd begins to disperse. I ask Royce why. It's L.A., man, he responds. I later learn that everybody in L.A. leaves early to beat the traffic. Royce informs me he needs to replenish his inventory. There's an after-party for magic at the house of the Lakers owner. The night has just begun. Royce and Pierce pull up to Pickfair, Dr. Jerry Buss's estate in Bel Air. All the glamorous estates seem to have their own namesake. Pickfair was the surname blend of the actress Mary Pickford and the actor Douglas Fairbanks. It was the first private home in Los Angeles with a swimming pool. At 14 bedrooms, 24 baths, and 25,000 square feet, Pickfair parties in the 1920s and 30s were, as you could imagine, legendary. But the parties came to an end when Mr. Fairbanks had a torrid affair with the lady Sylvia Ashley. Mary Pickford filed for divorce. It was said she lived in the home for the next 40 years under a dark cloud of alcohol and depression. The house would fall into total disrepair until the Lakers owner, Dr. Buss, snatched it up and restored it to its former glamour. Roy shows me around the party. Just hours ago, I was sitting courtside close enough to slap a high five after a made basket. Now, I'm standing close enough to do the same, although I wouldn't dare. Instead of cheerleaders, they're now surrounded by the most beautiful women I've ever seen in my life. One Laker catches my attention. He's one of the bigger guys with a throwback 70s jerry curl. He dances by the massive speakers. No groupies, no pretty young ladies. He's there dancing alone, grooving to the music. I learned from Royce, this is AC Green. The reason he's not surrounded by babes, Royce tells me, is because he's a devout Christian and a virgin. 
I marvel at this man, at the high of his fame, and yet abstinent from all temptations swirling around him. He was, in many ways, the polar opposite of Don. As I watched Mr. Green dance to earth, wind and fire, I realised that nobody at the party is having a better time than Mr. Green. Royce finds me and gestures to come out to the pool where we can talk away from the music. He tells me he had buyers lined up for tonight, but they backed out hearing rumours of Don Simpson's death and possible overdose. His prophecy had run true. Don's death was bad for business. Word is now out that it might have been Royce's coke that had killed Don. Royce is distraught. It's apparent he's been dipping into his own product after failing to sell it. I struggle to console him. His pager beeps and he wanders off to take the call. Several young women jump into the pool topless. Nobody seems to pay them much attention. There's an attitude much like the past hors d'oeuvre that there's more where that came from. Royce comes back, his anger channeled into a controlled fury. I attempt to calm him down, but it appears I am the object of his wrath. He wants to know why I'm asking questions about Autumn Weston. I should be asking questions as to what the police had found at Don Simpson's house, and why the fuck did the autopsy reveal he died of natural causes when everyone in town knows that Don did a shitload of fucking drugs, some of which were sold by Royce. Did I understand? This could mean a second-degree murder charge under death by distribution, which for Royce would mean a third time in prison under California penal law. That's three strikes and 25 years to fucking life. I follow Royce through the party, attempting to explain why I had made a house call to Autumn Weston's friend. But Royce is unhinged. He orders me to leave town immediately. If ever I try to contact Autumn or any of her friends, he will call upon his mates, the Colombians, to drive me up the coast to feed me to the elephant seals of Piedras Blancas. Any hope of Royce paying my hotel bill or the remote chance that he would continue paying my way for the foreseeable future was smothered in a cloud of exhaust from his Lamborghini. He's left me at the party. Pierce ended up getting a ride home from the only sober person at the party, A.C. Green, the Christian Virgin. Mr. Green wished me good luck, and he really meant it. The implication that, in fact, I really needed some good luck. Here was a devoutly pious man offering prayers that made me feel so impious. And yet, I knew of no sins that I had committed that evening. I walked past the lobby, avoiding eye contact with the desk clerk. My plan was to grab my bags, return my Firebird at the airport, buy a return ticket to England, and once in England, contest the credit card bill. I felt a dreaded sense of deja vu, as I was once again about to get run out of Los Angeles without a story to write on Don Simpson. I wondered if other journos were looking into Don's story. The Los Angeles Times writer Chuck Phillips and the AP writer Michael Freeman had been active in chronicling Don's illicit affairs. Perhaps one of them would crack the case. Pierce entered to find an invoice under the door. 
It was marked paid in full. There was an envelope with a message from the hotel clerk. Miss Maxwell has paid your bill. She asks that you meet her for breakfast. Pierce notes the address. 685 Stone Canyon Road. Don Simpson's address. Listen to The Don on the iHeartRadio Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Episode 5 Disclaimers. The actress friend of our fictitious Autumn Weston is also fictitious. She did not star in any of the Jennifer Aniston Leprechaun trilogy movies. The story of the actress Peg Entwistle, who killed herself by jumping off the Hollywood sign, is true. It is likely that Don, with his extensive knowledge of Hollywood history and his own personal struggles as an actor, knew of the story. As we mentioned, our drug dealer, Royce Newton, is inspired by Don's drug dealer, Race Newman. Race might have met Don for the first time when Race tried to break into Don's office to steal one of Don's gold records. We don't know if their relationship was anything more than transactional, but knowing Don, it's likely Don and Race were friendly on the party circuit. Don, according to the documentary Death by Excess, did buy drugs from one of Race's rivals, Al the Limo Man, who reportedly, per Don's request, delivered cocaine packed inside a movie script while Don was in meetings. The scenes with Pierce trailing Royce around Los Angeles are fictitious, including the recollection of the night of Magic Johnson's comeback from HIV game and the after-party at Dr. Jerry Buss's house. The Laker power forward, A.C. Green, was not, to our knowledge, at any of Mr. Buss's parties. Mr. Green was reportedly a virgin while playing in the NBA and did not touch drugs or alcohol. He even refused to spray champagne in the locker room during the Lakers' championship celebration. While A.C. lived in total abstinence and Don lived in total excess, they did share a pious religious upbringing. They also both went to college in Oregon. We wonder what might have been if A.C. could have connected with Don when he was spiraling in the depths of his horrible addiction.